0: You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Amen. You can have a seat. Excited to be with you guys this morning. Man, what a great... Easter weekend we had last weekend as we gathered together to celebrate our resurrected Lord. And you know, every time that we're together, we celebrate that. But Easter is just one of those special times when we get together, we pack this place out. And and I'm so thankful for you guys and for our church family and for every opportunity that we have to come together in this way. And so I want to open up this morning by just praying and thanking God for what He's doing and how He continues to to complete his will around us, which we know is always good for us. And so let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that you continue to do around us, for the ways that we see you move and work in our lives and in our family's lives and the lives of the people around us. Lord, we know that the message of the gospel that you've given us through your word, God, it, it has the power of salvation. And not only the power of salvation, but the power to change us from the inside out. So, Lord, my hope this morning as we open up your word is that that would be the case. That, that if we know you already, that we would continue to be changed. And for those in this room who don't know you, God, that you would speak to their heart about who you are and, and your love for them. Draw, continue to draw people to yourself as only you can do. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to two places. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, as we continue in this series called Breaking Point, looking at those moments that we come to in life where we realize that something just isn't working. And we've been looking at the promises that Jesus gave us through these, what we call Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount these promises that God has given us um, for these very moments in our lives, these these breaking points. And then the other place that I want you to turn is John chapter 6. We're going to be there in a little bit, but go ahead and mark your place there so you can get there uh, whenever we come to that point. Well, there here at the beginning of Matthew 5, we've looked so far at the first three principles and promises that Jesus gives to us in those seasons of life that we consider breaking points, those moments where we just reach our limit. And we say, God, God, I need you to do something because I've been doing this on my own for far too long and I need your help in this. And, and every time Jesus begins one of these statements, they're starting in verse 3, he starts with the words, blessed are, or we, we could say, happy are those who, who? And then we focus on the principle and we look at the promise that God has given us for that. Now one of the things that you've probably noticed as we've looked at verses 3, 4, and 5 so far is that what comes after blessed are and what comes after happy are those is not generally something that we associate with happiness. He says, blessed are the poor, None of us grow up aspiring to poverty, right? We we don't want to live our lives scratching and clawing after every crumb. But he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. We don't want to grieve because grief indicates that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. The death of a loved one, the, the death of a marriage, the death of a job... Whenever we experience loss, we grieve, and we we certainly don't associate those times with happy times. Blessed are the meek. The world doesn't like the meek. The world associates meekness with weakness, and the world wants strength, and so we don't think about being meek as being happy. And As we get to verse 6, we see this pattern continue as Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Happy are those who hunger and thirst. And there it is again. Because generally, hunger and thirst are not associated with happiness. We even invented a word that represents anger as a result of being hungry. What's the word? hangry, right? And I have a tiny 10-year-old human in my home who can go from just fine to uncontrollably hangry in the matter of moments, and his mother is exactly the same way. Like, it's not just him. Hangry hanger is a real thing. Now, at a physical level, hunger and thirst are literally a type of pain that your body feels, alerting it to the need for something, And so when I'm lacking fuel or energy, a sensation is triggered that lets me know I should eat something. Or when I've been out cutting grass and I've sweat out all of the liquid in my body, then my body generates this sensation that tells me I need to drink something, preferably water. Now, these sensations don't immediately present themselves in a way that I would associate with normal pain, And yet, what happens if we let them go for long periods of time? What happens if we don't satisfy our body's urge for food and water? It can become one of the most painful experiences that is known to the human body. In fact, it can become so painful, so intense, so unbearable, that I can reach a point where I become desperate enough to eat or drink anything in order to alleviate that painful sensation. So no, it is not a joy or a happiness or a blessedness to hunger and to thirst. Now Jesus is not describing literal hunger and thirst in this sense, but I want you to keep it in mind because he's certainly using those words intentionally to draw our attention to something. To get us in a place where I can relate with and understand what it is that he's going to say next. And it's connected to the reality that beyond simple food and water, all of us hunger and thirst after something that we think will satisfy us. All of us do that. The human life is marked by a striving after something. Now, if you are in an impoverished country where food and water are scarce, then maybe you are hungering and thirsting after literal food and water because you wake up every morning and the first thing and only thing on your mind is, how am I going to get food today? How am I going to get clean water today? We know that there are places in our world that are like that. And by the grace of God, we do not live in one of those places. In in our country, food and water are abundant. Generally, we do not go hungry and we do not go thirsty. And yet we still hunger and thirst. We hunger and thirst after wealth and, and possessions, a desire to accumulate as much as you can because you believe that you will be satisfied in the security of things. It could be relationships, closeness with other people because you're so afraid of being alone and you need this person or you need this group of people to complete you in some way. It could be that you hunger and thirst after your own health or the health and safety of the ones that you love. And so all of your anxiousness is driven by worry that something bad is going to happen to your children or your husband or your wife. And so it it drives you. It could be knowledge, because you derive the most satisfaction out of the feeling of being the smartest person in whatever room you're in. You could even hunger and thirst after religion. Now think about that for a minute. That we can hunger and thirst after trying to do the right things in order to earn God's favor so that we can feel comfortable with what our life is like. We can hunger, we can Thirst after that. I could go on. We could power, fame, sex, career, athletics, college scholarships, reputation. There is no limit to the things that we can hunger and thirst after. The point is that what you are hungering and thirsting after is ultimately going to determine what it is that you're feeding on. What do you spend your time doing? What do you think about when your mind is... is, is in, in the car, or you're not doing anything specific, and, and you're just kind of thinking, what is it that you're thinking about? Where's your money going? What does your checkbook look like when you look at your expenses? How are you spending your money? I have a, a desire, a hunger, if you will, to, to speak a second language. I'm fascinated by languages, as if you guys need any other reason to think of me as a nerd, right? I, I, <laughs> ha, I, I have this desire to communicate in another language. And so for the last seven or eight years, I, I've, I've studied German as a hobby. Ever since I met my friend Leo, I've studied German as a hobby. And, and I've spent countless hours looking at grammar and memorizing words and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and paying for software because I'm hungering after this, this ability To communicate clearly in a language that's not my own. And and I'm embarrassed by how little I can actually do that after all of this time. But but it's it's what I've been feeding on in some sense to satisfy this hunger. Now none of these things that, that I've listed are necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's certainly not sinful for me to want to learn another language. And to use resources to accomplish that. Education and knowledge are important. God designed us for relationships so that we could have joy in companionship. And so it's not sinful to desire a spouse. It's certainly a blessing to know that the people that you love are healthy and safe. But the problem doesn't come in simply having these things or even in the pursuit of them. The problem comes when this thing becomes the primary thing after which I am hungering and thirsting. The problem comes when it's the only thing I'm feeding on because I believe that it's going to fill me. And so the breaking point comes when I realize that what I'm hungering and thirsting after, it's not filling me. It's not getting there. And the challenge is that this realization doesn't often come easily or quickly. It's not like physical hunger and thirst that begins as a rumbling in your tummy or a dry throat and then gradually builds to an intense pain in which alarm bells are going off everywhere saying, you need to put food and water in me. It's not like that. Why? Because as I'm hungering and thirsting after that thing, I'm feeding on something. I'm ingesting something. And for a little while, that something that I'm ingesting may give me a sensation of being full. told the story last night, my dad, when he was, I said two or three, and then I was corrected when I got home. Um, When my dad was about six years old, he had to have his tonsils taken out. And of course, once that happens, um, you're not allowed to eat or drink anything solid for a a good while to let that heal. You tell that to a six-year-old, and what dad did was he got so hungry, he colored himself a cheeseburger, and then he ate it. Like he put it in his mouth, and he chewed it up, and he swallowed it. And of course, his mother was mortified. He, the doctors are concerned that something bad is going to happen as a result of this. He's still here with us today, so it's great. But, it, but it's kind of like that. It's like eating cardboard. I can take a cardboard box and I can cut it up into little pieces and I can put it in my mouth and I can chew it and I can swallow it and it can go down my esophagus, all of those normal eating mechanisms that my body goes through and, and it can even fill that void that's in my stomach. And yet it has no, no nutritional value whatsoever. It's not food. It's not energy. It's not fuel. My body doesn't just want a filled belly, it wants nutrients. And so, no matter how much cardboard I eat in my desperate hunger, I'm still going to starve to death. I'm still going to die. And I think in the history of humanity, there is one person who understood this idea better than anybody else, and that's King Solomon. If you want to see what I mean, you can flip back to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes with me. It's a very depressing book, uh, but it's there for a reason. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Solomon, he was the third king over the nation of Israel, over God's chosen people. Solomon was the son of King David, and he was most famous for being the wisest man who ever lived, because when he was a child and he took over kingship, God came to him and he said, you ask for anything, Solomon, anything, and and I'll grant it to you. And what did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom to rule over God's people, and God said, I'll grant you that wisdom, but I'm also going to grant you everything else because you've asked for wisdom to rule over my people. We can't comprehend the kind of wealth that Solomon had. It puts Elon Musk to shame, how much Solomon had. 1 Kings 4 gives us a picture. Solomon's daily provisions, this is daily, were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal. The footnote in your Bible says that this was about 5.5 tons of flour and 11 tons of meal, daily. 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer and gazelles and roebucks and choice fowl. Now, Solomon clearly is not eating all of this on his own. No, what is he doing? He is throwing daily parties. And by many estimates, those parties would every day have between fifteen and 20,000 people that he is feeding as guests at these parties. Solomon had friends. He had people around him. Verse 26 said he had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 stalls for regular dumb old horses. Your Bible doesn't say that, but that's how I interpreted it because they're not chariot horses. He had a a beautiful, massive palace that 1 Kings 7.1 says it took 13 years to build. Six years longer, by the way, than he spent building the temple of God. Thirteen years to build his his palace. He had relationships. He had women. 1 Kings 11.3 says he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, a 1,000 women, all vying for his attention every moment of the day. He had fame and reputation as royalty from distant lands would come all the way to to Israel to see his his wisdom and, and, and his splendor. no exaggeration to say that Solomon literally had everything the world could offer. All of those things that you and I hunger and thirst after, he had them in abundant supply. All of them. Every one of them. And you would think that a guy like that would be happy, that he would be satisfied and fulfilled. You know, we, we look at people in our world today who have even a fraction of that. We look at our celebrities and our athletes and our CEOs and and our entertainers, and and they have just a fraction of that, and we think, how is it possible that this person could ever be unhappy? That, That when they express the slightest bit of misery or unhappiness, we look at them and we say, man, they must be defective, or they must be ungrateful, or they must be selfish, or they must be greedy, and they may be all of those things. But the wisest and richest man who ever lived, the man who should have been the happiest, by this line of reasoning, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to see how he begins. Chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now you tell me, does that sound like someone who is happy? Satisfied? joyful, fulfilled, and it doesn't get better. In fact, it sets the tone for the entire book as he recounts all that he had done and experienced and everything that he had tasted. He had the parties and he had the friends and he had the wealth and he had the knowledge and he had the reputation, he had the power and he had the sex and he had the beauty and the splendor and look at what he writes in chapter two, verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And then in verse 17, he says, So I hated life. The man who had everything, hated life. See, Solomon had reached his own breaking point. He was starving because all he had been eating was cardboard. And Ecclesiastes is in your Bible to show you that if the wisest and richest man who ever lived couldn't find happiness in hungering and thirsting after worldly things, then what in the world gives us the mind that we can expect anything different? That that I can expect to be satisfied with these things. It will never happen. And before you even realize that you're hungry, you'll be starving to death. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us here. It would be pretty depressing if he did, but he doesn't leave us here. We've seen in this series that he always has an answer for these breaking points in our lives, and this one is no different. He says there in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I believe that eating and drinking habits are some of the most difficult to change. At least that's what I've experienced in my own life. Because when your body is used to eating and drinking the same things at generally the same times throughout the day, it is incredibly difficult to make long-term adjustments to those habits and develop new and better habits for the types of things that you should eat and drink and the times at which you should do so. That's why fad diets don't generally work. They're short-term solutions to quick weight loss that ultimately doesn't build lasting habits. And so the best diets, or, or lack of a better word, would, were, they work by helping you to reprogram your body to desire the things that are healthiest for it eaten in the right amounts at the right times during the day. It it requires a complete shift in mindset about what's good for you coupled with the right motivation to follow through. And so weight loss in and of itself is not a very strong motivator. But if I desire to live longer for my children or grandchildren, if I desire to be more active so I can go out and play with them. That becomes a more important motivator for me. You can't just stop eating food. You have to replace it with something and you need the right motivation to do it. And so you train your brain to want the right things and to not want the wrong things. And this is essentially what Jesus is calling us to hear. That in all of your hungering and thirsting and feeding and trying to satisfy yourself, you've been eating something that never will. You've been eating cardboard and it has no nutrients to give you life and health. And yet it is what your body is used to because it's what you've been feeding on your entire life. And because you've been feeding on it your entire life, you're starving. It's going to take a completely new mindset in order to get you to a place where you start desiring what is right and stop desiring what is wrong. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you something else to hunger and thirst after. I'm going to take that cardboard and I'm going to replace it with something that is life-giving. But you're going to have to be reprogrammed in a sense into understanding how good this is for you. He says you will be blessed, you will be happy if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so you take all of those pursuits, all of those things that you've been going after because you thought they would bring you peace or joy or commitment or satisfaction and you replace them with this one thing. In essence, I need to be reprogrammed to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And this is something that the Holy Spirit does inside of me when when he's living and dwelling inside of me. But it takes a reprogramming of my mind and of my heart to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But what does that mean? What does it look like? What is righteousness in this sense? Well, at its most basic level, righteousness is doing what God wants me to do. And, and I know what God wants me to do because he's told me what it is that he wants me to do. That's the most basic level of righteousness. And we know, we know that we can't do that on our own. In fact, we've, we've already messed that up. But Jesus has an answer for that too. Remember I said that the things that we hunger and thirst after are ultimately going to determine the things that we feed on. And if you've marked your place earlier, you can go ahead and turn now To John chapter 6. At the beginning of this chapter, John writes for us one of two recorded occasions in which Jesus fed thousands of people with just a small amount of food. And what he's doing with this particular miracle or sign, as John calls them, is preparing to reveal something significant about himself. The signs were always meant to point beyond the miracle to the one who was performing the miracle. And so Jesus would often do this in order to prepare the people to receive some kind of information about himself. He had physically fed the crowd. They were more than satisfied. That's why That's why it's told to us that they picked up leftovers in baskets. That means that nobody walked away hungry. Everybody had their fill. And after they had picked up the baskets, he had withdrawn to be by himself because he knew they were going to try and make him king by force, as John says in verse 15. John tells us that the disciples had set out across the Sea of Galilee into Capernaum without Jesus, because he had gone off by himself. <clears throat> and in the middle of the night, Jesus walks across the lake and he gets into the boat with them. The crowd, who had stuck around on the other side, they, they slept there, hoping that in the morning they would be able to get more food from Jesus. So they wake up and then they notice they notice something, that the disciples and Jesus are no longer there. And so they set out across the lake in search of Jesus And John records beginning in verse 25. You can follow along in your Bible. John says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? You see, they noticed that the disciples had left without Jesus. And when they got up the next morning, there wasn't one less boat. And so they're wondering in their minds, how is it possible that Jesus got from this side of the shore to this side of the shore. And of course, we know Jesus' walked. When did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus is saying, you missed the sign. You're not here looking for me. You're here looking for more food verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God, the father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answers in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And there it is right there. That if righteousness at its most basic level is doing what God requires of us, then Jesus answers the question of what God requires of us. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And I I love their next question. In verse 30, they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? What will he do? He did it the day before across the, the lake. He did it on the other shore when he fed thousands of them with food that was essentially from heaven in order to point them to the reality that he is the real bread from heaven. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes me will never be thirsty. And then in verse 40, he connects it back To doing what God wants. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And then he restates it in verse 47 Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Verse 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And then he gets way more direct in verse 53. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Verse 57, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is our bread. And he is more important than food. Jesus is the one we should be feeding on because he's the only one who will satisfy our hunger and thirst and give us life. He is the bread of life and we feed on this bread We feed on Jesus by getting to know him as closely as we possibly can on this side of heaven, by by opening our Bibles and not just reading about him, but reading about everything that's led up to him and everything that's come after him. We feed on him by being here and listening to preaching about him and singing songs to him and being in fellowship with other believers in his name. We feed on him by getting on our knees and thanking God the Father for sending him by living obedient and holy lives because that's what he saved us to. That his blood has bought for you a holy life. This is how we feed on righteousness, by reprogramming our brains to understand that everything else is cardboard and he is the only real food that gives eternal life. So we feed on Jesus. We get as as close to him as we possibly can We seek to become more like him every day by the power of God's Holy Spirit. You see how all three of the the persons of the Trinity work together in the life of a believer. And when we do that, God gives us this promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. This, This is an amazing reality. That the moment you stop hungering and thirsting after cardboard and you start hungering and thirsting after righteousness to do the will of the Father and feeding on the bread of life who is Jesus, your hunger and thirst will be fully satisfied immediately. There, there's not this period where I need to live a certain amount of days sin free before God fills me. That's not what Jesus says here. This is an immediate Filling, as promised by Jesus Christ to those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And yet what we also find is that the more that we get, the more that we want. We hunger and thirst and are filled, and the more we're filled, the more we hunger and thirst. But it's not like a starving man who sits at a table and eats and eats and eats and never can get rid of that pain of hunger that would be a picture of hell wouldn't it to, to to always be hungry no matter how much you eat you always feel hungry that's not what we're talking about no what i'm what i'm talking about is that sweet spot in your meal it's that it's that period between sitting down at the table and starting to eat and that moment when you're so full you can't stand it you know what i'm talking about like that spot in between those two moments See, no matter how hungry I am, when I sit down to enjoy a meal, if I, if I go to Longhorn I sit at the table, the moment that I start eating, no matter how hungry I am, that hunger seems to go away. Like, it's not in my mind anymore. And that's why restaurants give you bread, because you won't complain if your meal takes an hour. Because you've forgotten, in a sense, that you're hungry by eating on something. Now, If you get up from the table after just eating one or two pieces of bread and you walk out the door, then you're still going to be hungry. But there's this moment when I start eating and it tastes so good that I forget about my hunger. I forget about that pain that I experienced before I get in there. But on the other side is that no matter how delicious that food is, you're going to reach a point where your stomach is so full you just can't put one more bite in your body. How many have said, it's so delicious, I just wanna keep eating? Well, why don't you? Because your stomach is so full, you literally cannot put another bite into it, and now you're, now you're uncomfortable. Now, now it, it's caused a different kind of pain on the other side of where you were before. I'm talking about the moment between those two places. The moment when I sit down at the table and I'm surrounded by friends and family and we we just begin eating and the food is delicious. And the realization that I'm never going to reach a point where I'm so filled I can't stand another bite. That's what Jesus promises us. That when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, after belief in the real bread of life that has come down for heaven to rescue us, that we sit down at this table and we begin eating the most delicious food that we have ever experienced, and there will never be a time where you'll have to stop eating because you're so full, and yet you're not gonna remember the hunger, and this is what we've been promised, not just not just in eternity. We know that. But right now, today, we can experience this kind of filling that God has called us to. Solomon closes Ecclesiastes with these words. After all that he had said about meaningless and chasing after the wind, he ultimately figured it out. And why shouldn't he? He was the wisest man who ever lived. And so... Uh, One verse says that he actually, through all of this, kept his wisdom. And God is using his story to illustrate something to us. And so after all of this talk of meaninglessness, he says in chapter 12, verse 13, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. And what has God commanded? To believe in the one he has sent. To feed on the real bread of life that's come down from heaven. And so do you feed on him? Do you believe in him? Do you know what it is to be satisfied, to be filled with Jesus Christ in this, in this sweet spot of unending joy? If not, then I pray you would respond to God's call. To know him. To believe in Him and what He has done. And if you have believed in Him, then the encouragement for you is to stay at the table. Because the moment you get up from the table and you walk away because your eye catches something else, you're going to feel hungry again. That pain that, that pain's going to come back of not being satisfied. Why do we get up from the table when all that we need is right there? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, that we would stay at the table because we know that it's only at this table that we experience the greatest amount of joy as we feed on the most delicious food that that, that we've ever experienced. And yet we become so short-sighted that we sometimes get up and we walk away and we have to be brought back. And by your grace, you allow us to experience these breaking points because they do bring us back. God, how much better our lives would be if we could just stay here. And so Father, keep us here. Keep us where you are. Keep us where Jesus is that we might know and experience what it means to to be fully satisfied, to be filled. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.